Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In our episode today, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer continues in a new mini-series on spiritual gifts. The series is called Out of Many, One. In this series, we are looking at what the Bible reveals to us about these God-given gifts. Today's talk focuses on the gift of tongues. If you're in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. Stick around to the end and find out how you can connect with us here at Unity Baptist Church. I'd like to invite you this morning, if you have your worship folder, your bulletin in front of you, you're going to find an outline inside. If you need one of those outlines, I don't know if we have any extra bulletins in the back or any extra handouts, just raise your hand and uh, Vessi will come around and get you one. So we, we have a, a couple of folks that would need one. We got several up here. So you're gonna want this this morning. It's not every Sunday that we give you a handout to help you follow along, but friends, you're gonna need it this morning. This is a complicated subject and I hate to do this to you, Uh, But we're talking about spiritual gifts, and we're going to pause on this gift because there is more confusion about what this gift is and what it's for than any other spiritual gift anywhere in the Bible. And let me just say there is not universal agreement on tongues, as you're going to see. This is a very difficult subject. I'm going to attempt this morning, pray for me, to take an extremely complicated subject and to make it very simple Part of my goal in doing that is this handout. So the cookies are going to be on the top shelf this morning, friends, okay? If you want, you can open up. The first passage we're gonna look to is Acts chapter two. I just wanna give a sort of disclaimer, a little bit of a introduction to tongues here. Because there is not universal agreement on tongues amongst Christians, even amongst Southern Baptists, there's not universal agreement. Can I just say, Whatever you choose to believe about tongues, can we be friends when we're done here? Okay, so uh, whether you believe in it, whether you don't believe in it, whether you think it's this or you think it's this, can we just agree that uh, the important thing here is that as brothers and sisters in Christ, we can leave and we can go have lunch at Cheddar's together still, and you'll pay, right? So this is what we're going to do. We're going to try to approach this in a loving way. This is not intended to be an attack or a defense of anything. It's simply meant to give you the pertinent scriptures that are necessary to help you go home and to understand what this gift means. And the other thing I'm gonna ask you is this. Whatever you choose to believe about tongues, can I ask you, base it upon scriptural evidence and not just personal experience? Is it possible to have an experience that feels spiritual, that feels worshipful, that feels like it's from God and not be? Is it possible? It is. It's possible to even witness things that appear to be miraculous that are not from God. Do you remember in the Old Testament with Moses, God gave him the ability to do miraculous things to authenticate him as a messenger from God. And some of those things that he did before Pharaoh was, he'd take that staff and he'd throw it down and what happened? Turned into a snake. Then he turned the water into blood. And both of those times, Pharaoh's court magicians copied and did the same thing. Do you remember that? He he brings a plague of toads. Then what do the court magicians do? They bring a plague of toads. I always think it's interesting. The only thing those lost guys were able to do was make the plague even worse. You know, the real miracle would be, can you clear up these toads? 
They didn't do that though. So I want you to understand it's possible to witness something that looks miraculous, that feels spiritual, that feels worshipful, and still not be something that comes from God. And so whether or not these court magicians were doing this out of just sleight of hand and trickery, or whether or not it was demonic power empowering these signs, it is possible to witness something, to experience something, and still not have it be from God. So whatever you choose to believe on tongues, make sure it's not just based on an experience or a story that you heard, base it upon what does scripture say the gift is. So having said that, let's jump right in. We're gonna look at number one, the nature of tongues. We're gonna find that in Acts chapter two. It's a familiar passage to most of us. It's the day of Pentecost, the birth of the church, when the Holy Spirit first began to indwell believers and give gifts to man. And so the first thing we're gonna see under the nature of tongues is A, tongues are immediate, they are not a learned gift. How do we know that? Look at Acts chapter two, verse one. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, and by the way, Pentecost was just one of those feasts where all the Jews from around the world come and gather several times a year. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven the sound of a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire Uh, as of fire, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So what's clear so far? You have these disciples, they received the Holy Spirit. As a result of receiving the Holy Spirit, there was an evidence in this particular case where they began to speak in tongues. So we know that they're speaking in tongues, but the other thing that we need to notice here is the nature of tongues. It was immediate, it was sudden. How do we know? The Bible says it was suddenly. First, you have all of these Galilean Jews and they're gathering and they're worshiping and they're praying. They can't even speak their own language without an accent. The Galileans had a very thick, strong accent. And then all of a sudden, the Bible uses the term suddenly. The moment that the Holy Spirit fills them, they are able to speak multiple different languages. Instantly. That's what made it a sign gift. If it's you had to sit here and struggle through grammar and you had to struggle through language school to get there, that's not a gift, okay? That's, That's painful, it's difficult, it takes time. And the reason I have to say that tongues are immediate, it's not a learned gift, because there are those uh, in the tongue-speaking circles who will try to encourage you, why don't you just try out tongues? Just practice it at home. You can go home, I mean, check it out. There's YouTube videos that are instructionals on how to speak in tongues. And they'll tell you, just start with a syllable. Usually they'll tell you like, ba. And they'll just say, just start repeating the same syllable over and over again. Ba, 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 ba. And then just keep doing that until you start to feel something. And then uh, start adding a syllable in. Ba 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 da ba 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 da ba 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 da ba, and, and that's what they'll that's what they'll teach. That you can teach yourself a learned gift. Can I tell you, friends, with all the love and compassion I have in my heart, what you're seeing there, they may intend good, but it does not match the scriptural precedent set in Acts two. Suddenly, Holy Spirit, instantly able to speak in tongues. There was no practicing. There's no coloring books for your children that teach you. By the way, those exist. Coloring books for the children to teach them how to speak in tongues. That does not match the scriptural example that we have of tongues in Acts chapter two. B, we're gonna see here that tongues are actual earthly languages. Look in Acts chapter two, verse five. It says, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. That's important that you see that. Every nation under heaven. Okay, so you have Jews from every nation. These are Jews who linguistically and ethnically are from other nations. 
or not ethnically, linguistically and culturally from other nations, but ethnically, they're Jewish. It'd be sort of like Jerry Seinfeld, okay? He's a Jew, but he's an American Jew. So if all of a sudden he were to decide to be a practicing Jew and go over to Jerusalem and, and participate in this feast that's entirely held in Hebrew, he would be lost. And so if he went over there expecting it to be in Hebrew, but all of a sudden he hears them speaking in tongues and speaking American English with no accent, he'd be like, whoa, what, what happened here? Okay, so that's what, we're, that's what we're looking at here is there are people from every nation under heaven. They're all Jewish, but they're coming together. And even though they're Jewish, they, they're from other countries, so they don't all speak the same languages. Verse six, it says, and at this sound, the sound of the apostles speaking in tongues, the multitude of Jews, they came together. It says they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? Again, Galileans did not have a good reputation as being the, amongst the intelligentsia of society. They were considered kind of hick, redneck, uneducated. You can be fishermen, but you're certainly not amongst the scholars of the nation. And it's only the scholars who knew how to speak these other languages. So to see Galilean fishermen speaking a language, this is instantly that they had never learned before, and they speak it with absolute perfect fluency and no accent, that's a sign. And so they are confused. He says, how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Notice he's talking about native languages. And then he gives you a list here, bear with me. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed saying one to one another, what does this mean? Now, they're asking the right question when they see a sign gift. What did we learn about sign gifts last week? They are meant to authenticate a message. They're, meant to, they're called wonders. They're meant to make you, fill you with wonder. Wow, what is happening here? This must have some kind of significant meaning to it. But I want you to see here very clearly, the gift of tongues was the ability to speak multiple different earthly human languages without ever having studied with immediate and complete fluency. That was the gift of tongues. It was meant to shock. And so it was an actual earthly language. And lest we start thinking that maybe it wasn't a, a human language, look at what the Bible says here. It lists all these different countries, Parthians, Medes, and Elamites. 50, at least 15 different languages are represented right here in Acts so that in case you get confused, they're speaking other human languages. Now, because of that, I have a number of friends who are tongue-speaking friends, and yes, I have tongue-speaking friends, um, who will say, well, Acts 2, we get what you're saying there. That was an act, you know, those are actual languages, but they'll try to tell you that Acts 2 is, a, is not the gift of tongues. It's a different experience. It was, uh, they'll say it was the supernatural gift of hearing rather than speaking tongues. The problem is scripture doesn't bear that out. What does scripture say here? It says that the apostles are speaking in tongues. They're exercising their spiritual gift. By the way, there's no supernatural gift of hearing described here. And even if it was a gift, we're talking about a bunch of lost Jews, Jews who don't know God, who don't have the Holy Spirit. Okay, so they're not gonna be exercising any kind of gift at all. And so here it says, the Bible says the apostles were speaking in tongues. That was what was being used. Moreover, uh, this event here in Acts 2 when the apostles received the Holy Spirit and they spoke in other languages, 
Later on in Acts chapter 10, we see tongues spoken again. And in Acts 10, this time it's Gentiles. Now, again, the Gentiles didn't receive the Holy Spirit in the same way right away because they didn't want a divided church. If the Jews are doing their thing here and all of a sudden the Gentiles get the Holy Spirit over here, you're gonna have a separate Jew and Gentile church. Even in Acts 10, God had to give Peter a vision, say, seriously, don't call what I made unclean. Go talk to Cornelius. The Jews were very slow to get to the Gentiles, did not want to incorporate Gentiles into the church. And so when they went there, they laid on hands and let them speak in tongues. And God waited for that moment for them to hear this so that they would understand that their tongues and their tongues were the same thing, that their Holy Spirit and their Holy Spirit are the same thing. Let me show you. He says, uh, when, when he hears them speak in tongues, uh, Peter says in Acts 10, 46, for they were hearing them, the Gentiles, speaking in tongues and extolling God. And Peter declares this. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have, what does your Bible say? Receive the Holy Spirit just as we have. So Peter sees Acts 10 tongues and Acts 2 tongues as being the exact same event. They received the Holy Spirit the exact same way we did. They received the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues exactly as we have. And so Acts 2 and Acts 10 are not two different types of events. They're the exact same type of event. The Bible equates them. And so Acts 2 is not a unique event, okay? So the, the, only, the, only, the problem is that much of, I say much, all the tongues that I've been encountered are not this kind of tongues. They're not actual language tongues. They're speaking of what is often referred to as a heavenly language or an angelic language. We don't see this gift of tongues practiced throughout the world of learning not just one, but multiple earthly language suddenly, immediately, and with complete fluency. You just don't see that. And so I wanna point out that tongues is not a heavenly language or an angelic language as many people try to say. The original founder, if you will, in the United States in that area of Pentecostalism, a fellow named Charles Fox Parham, he was an evangelist and uh, he would initially teach when he taught about tongues, he would do this kind of ecstatic speech thing, but he thought he was actually speaking a foreign language. And so he and his missionary society believed it so strongly, they bought tickets and they went overseas to do missions. I mean, if you can speak foreign languages without studying, that's a real benefit, speaking as a missionary. That's a huge bonus. And so they actually went overseas thinking they were speaking other languages. They got on the ground. Nobody understood them and they realized, wow, that's discouraging. We thought we were speaking in tongues. And so they went home very discouraged. It was shortly after that, uh, about six, seven, eight years ago, or later, at around 1906, when one of Charles Fox Parham's students, a guy named Joseph Seymour, uh, at the Azusa Street Revival, brought back tongues. But this time, they didn't try saying that it was a foreign language. They said, well, this is a heavenly. It's an angelic language. It's why nobody understands it. That's when tongues flipped in America from being an actual language to a heavenly language, as it's said. And they get this from 1 Corinthians 13, 1. Paul says, if I speak with the tongue of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I want to point something out here. 1 Corinthians 13, also called often the love chapter of the Bible. The first three verses, he's talking, the focus, by the way, isn't tongues, it's love. The first three verses are gonna talk about the importance of love, and then it gives you those verses you have on your wall. Love is patient, love is kind, love is long-suffering. Those verses that you made your husbands memorize, wives, those verses. Right before that, he introduces it by showing the importance of love. 
He says in 1 Corinthians 13, 1, if I could speak with the tongue of men and angels but don't have love, I'm nothing. What's the point of that verse? Is it to teach that we can speak with the tongue of men and angels? No, the, the purpose of that, he's using a literary device called hyperbole. English teachers, hyperbole. He's making an exaggeration to make a point. If I could speak all languages on the earth and even the ones that aren't on earth, if I don't have love, I'm worthless as a church. I'm worthless as an individual. That's how important love is. And the next two verses continue this hyperbole. He says in the, in the following verse, he says, if I understand all mysteries and have all knowledge and have all faith, by the way, is that humanly possible? Is there anybody here who has, understands all mysteries and have all faith and all knowledge? You are omniscient. Anyone claiming omniscience here that isn't a teenager? I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm joking, we love our teens. Uh, there's nobody omniscient here. This is not something we can do, right? We, we all agree universally, nobody's omniscient here. But he says, even if you could be, if you don't have love, we're nothing. And then in verse three, he goes on to say, if I give away all that I have and I deliver my body to be burned, if I don't have love, I'm nothing. And so does God demand that as part of our discipleship, that as soon as you become a member of the church, you literally have to give away everything that you have? If you do, friends, that's not a church, it's a cult. Okay, we don't ask members to do that. You, you know, enjoy what God has given to you. We give the Lord freely. But nobody asks you to give away absolutely everything that you have. Nobody asks you to throw your body onto a burn pile when you receive Jesus. It would be really hard to build churches that way. These are things that we're not called to do necessarily. These are the extremes of something. Some of these things are even impossible. So to build a case that you can speak an angelic tongue from hyperbole is a misuse of that scripture. It's not teaching that we can. It's not even teaching that we should. Others, they'll go to uh, other verses. Romans 8, 26, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And so there are some who will say, well, it's an angelic language, it's right here. Can I share with you? Romans does not speak about the gift of tongues anywhere in the book. There is no context in Romans where you're gonna pull that out. And Romans does speak about spiritual gifts, Romans 12. Does not speak about tongues. And so this is not speaking about tongues. In fact, what is he speaking about here? He's talking about prayer. When we pray, the Holy Spirit within us, we're praying to God, but then what, the, what is the Holy Spirit doing with our prayers? He's reinterpreting them to the Father. And those words that the Holy Spirit uses is a special language between him and the Father that we don't understand. Not only can we not understand it, what else does it say? We can't speak it even if we wanted to. These are groanings that are too deep for words. In other words, he's saying it's impossible for a human to articulate this speech. This is in no way speaking of an angelic language tongue. And I don't say this to be, to be disparaging. I say this because it's the truth of the word of God. And friends, there's nothing more loving that a pastor can do than to share truth with you. Truth is dangerous. If I just wanted to share some cute stories and make you all laugh and go home, and it, we'll have a lot of fun together. But if I share truth, it's always, truth always gets to the heart of people, and it has a tendency to make some people, encourages them and comforts them, but other people, it can, it can upset them when we hear truth. And so we're sharing truth with the attempt to help us understand what the gift is. Also, because it's not a, heavenly, uh, heaven, a singular heavenly language or an angelic language because when 1 Corinthians 12 talks about tongues as a gift, how does it describe tongues? It says, and to some various kinds of tongues. 
So those who speak in tongues don't speak one heavenly language. It's the ability to speak any kind of language at any time, at any place on earth. Now, we're going to look at number two here. The purpose of tongues. What on earth was tongues even all about? What was it for? I'm going to share with you, tongues was a sign to unbelieving Jews. You say, how on earth do you know that? Well, the Bible, again, the Bible says so. It was a fulfillment of a Jewish prophecy. You're going to see in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, if you want to, again, hopefully you've found your way to 1 Corinthians 14, verses 20 to 22, he's going to talk about tongues being assigned to unbelievers. And furthermore, he's going to show you that, that what he's quoting there is actually an Old Testament prophecy to Jews. So it's a, it's a prophecy to unbelieving Jews. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 14, 20 to 22. 1 Corinthians 14, by the way, is the most exhaustive and comprehensive description of tongues and what it is and what it isn't. 1 Corinthians 14, 20 says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. In other words, don't be immature. Don't just base what you believe upon how you feel. Base it on Scripture. He says, in, and then he points to Scripture. In the law, it is written. Pause. What's he saying here? What I'm about to share with you is not something new that Paul has come up with. I'm quoting Old Testament here. In the law, it is written by people of strange tongues in the lips of foreigners. By the way, those descriptions both describe actual human foreign languages. He says, will I speak to this people? Who are they? The Jews. And even then, they, the Jews, will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign, not for... Not for who? Not for believers. That's unusual because most modern tongues that are spoken are spoken in what context? To other believers. He says tongues aren't assigned to believers, but rather to unbelievers, while prophecy, the proclamation of the truth of God's word, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. Now, we need to understand what he's quoting here. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 28, verses 11 and 12. He says, for by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to his people, the Jews, to whom he has said, this is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose, yet they would not hear. Let me share something. Isaiah 28 has both what we call a near and a far fulfillment. In other words, it had meaning in the day that it was spoken, but it still has a future fulfillment that was not yet fully realized. Now, how do we know which, which prophecies have a near and far fulfillment? You don't have to worry about it, God tells you. If scripture later on tells you that it had another fulfillment, then it does. If it doesn't say it, then it didn't have a far fulfillment. Is that clear? Okay, so it is a, Isaiah 28 had a near fulfillment, and at that time Isaiah was, was prophesied who were the lips of foreigners that were coming into Israel's borders as a sign of God's judgment? Does anybody remember? Right before they got, Israel got pulled out into captivity, we had the Assyrians. It was an actual earthly language. They came in and they brought, that was a sign of God's judgment. Whenever Israel heard the, the lips of foreigners within their borders, they knew they were under judgment. And Paul uses this verse and says there's a distant fulfillment of this also. It's in 1 Corinthians 14. He quotes it and says, this is a sign. He's pointing back, and he's like, just as back then to the God was speaking to the Jews, hearing foreign languages was a sign of judgment, just as now, when you hear the sound of foreign languages amongst you, Jews, this is a sign, you rejected your Messiah. And now God is going to the Gentiles. It's a sign, not to unbelievers, but to unbelievers, in particular, unbelieving 
Jews. Now B, let's go to that. Because it was assigned to the Jews, tongues were already declining even within the New Testament. Consider this. Acts chapter two was the broadest, biggest, most flashy show of tongues ever in the history of mankind. Why is that? It's because the church was entirely Jewish and they were preaching to an entirely Jewish audience. And so if you're going to proclaim that Israel has rejected their Messiah and it's assigned to unbelievers and unbelieving Jews, this is the place you're going to do it. And so you had tongues massively used to proclaim this message, you have rejected your Messiah, God has gone to the Gentiles. Now through this message and through this sign gift, thousands were added to the church. But the reason it was so big in Acts 2 is because the church was entirely Jewish. Later on in Acts 10, when the gospel finally goes to the Gentiles, you have uh, Peter and some of his buddies going to Cornelius, his whole household and some of his buddies. It's a much smaller group. And then in Acts 19, which is the very final time you hear about tongues as an incident in the New Testament, it's a much smaller group. You've got Paul and then a few guys he's talking to. And so you see it just kind of decrescendoing through the New Testament. Why would tongues decrescendo through the New Testament? At the beginning, the church was all Jewish. At the end of the New Testament, what's the church primarily composed of? Gentiles, you and me, the uttermost parts of the earth. Do Gentiles need to hear tongues as a sign of God's judgment that he's going to the Gentiles? No, they don't. It was a sign to unbelieving Jews. So even within the New Testament, we see that it was already disappearing. And in the last instance of it, in Acts 19, Paul was in Ephesus. That was about AD 52. AD 53 is when 1 Corinthians was written. And only in that Account. There's four accounts in the New Testament, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Peter 4, and Ephesians 4. Of all of those accounts of spiritual gifts, only the earliest of them even mention sign gifts. Clearly, sign gifts were already decrescendoing throughout the New Testament. And even in 1 Corinthians, where he talks about tongues, was he saying, yeah, tongues is great, let's all speak in tongues. He wasn't, was he? They were abusing tongues in the Corinthian church. They were not a healthy church. In fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, 19, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. You tell me, Does, is Paul prioritizing the preaching of the word of God or speaking in tongues? The preaching of the word. He says literally five words in a tongue. Jesus loves you, this I know. That's actually six. Okay, but even six words. You see how short a sermon that is. Paul said, I'd rather you preach a five-word sermon than to go on and on and on with 10,000 words in a tongue. So even then, tongues was decrescendoing throughout the New Testament. We're gonna ask, look here, uh, see, are tongues for the purpose of self-edification? I say this because many modern tongue speakers feel like uh, I'm supposed to be edifying myself with this gift. That's, that's why I speak in these tongues. But is that what the original intention was for? Remember 1 Corinthians 12, 7, he says to each, each believer is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. What is the purpose of spiritual gifts? Is it for me? I'm getting depressed here. Are spiritual gifts for me? No, I don't go home and I don't encourage myself with them. What do I do? I go to the church and I use them to build up other people. People say, wait, 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 wait. The Bible actually commands that we should edify ourselves with the gift of tongues. Uh-oh. 1 Corinthians 14, 4, and they'll quote it. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. What do we do with that? You do with that what you do with every verse that's a little bit confusing to you. You always put it into context. Never read a verse without the verses that come before or after. 
Why? Because you can pull it out of context, can't you? Do you like when people pull your words out of context? You know, you don't. It's it, it, when people misrepresent you and what you said. Instead, you want them to understand the fullness of what you said. That's why sound bites can be so deceiving online. So what is the fullness of that passage there in 1 Corinthians 14 in verse 4? First of all, understand this. The far context of the entire book is Corinthians. Was Corinth a good church? Were they a healthy church, a spiritual church? Most of you have been in church much of your life. You know Corinth was the bad boy of the New Testament. They were always getting in trouble. It was the youngest child, okay? It was, don't, don't write, email me if you're a youngest child. You know, they're the ones that are always doing something to get attention. They're always doing stuff. They're stirring it up. They're causing trouble. That's Corinth. And so Paul in 1 Corinthians writes them a book of rebuke. And he's saying, hey, you're doing this, it's wrong. And then he says in 1 Corinthians 12, I'll show you a better way. You're doing this, but it's wrong. Let me show you a better way. The entire book follows that pattern of showing the Corinthians what they're doing wrong in every single chapter. And then Paul shows them what they should be doing. Following that pattern, listen to the full context of 1 Corinthians 14 and see if you can tell me what, it, what he's actually communicating here. For the one who speaks in a tongue, this is chapter 14, verse four, or like three and four in that area. For the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him and he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, he's about to show them the better way. Here's what I want you to do. On the other hand, the one who prophesies, who preaches, he says he speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Tell me, is he encouraging people to go home and just use tongues to build up themselves, or is he encouraging the gifts that build up the entire church? Which is it? It's to build up the whole church. He was actually rebuking them. When he says, he who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, he's saying, that's not a good thing. That's not a good thing that you're just focusing on you and how you feel and it's something between you and God that you're not using the spiritual gift to build up and edify others. That's not good. So it's actually the opposite of what it appears to say when you pluck it outside of context. When you put it in context, it becomes very clear. And so he is downplaying the, the intention and purpose of or the usage of tongues here, even in 1 Corinthians. Now, it was still an active gift at that time. So he wants to validate those who are really using tongues and using it in a proper way, he'll even say, I wish that you all spoke in tongues. Now, Paul's saying, I wish you spoke in tongues doesn't mean everybody should. The Bible also says that God desires that none should perish, that all should come to repentance. Are there gonna be people who go to hell? Yes. God's desire is, hey, I'd love all to come to repentance, but you won't. Same thing here. Paul's like, man, if you're really using the gift of tongues in the right way, in the right fashion and manner, great. I wish you all did. But it doesn't mean that we're supposed to. In fact, Paul specifically said we don't. 1 Corinthians 12, 29, he says, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work in miracles, do all possess gifts of healing? And there he says it. Do all speak with tongues? For every one of those questions, it's an implied negative. Of course, we aren't all prophets. We're not all teachers. We're not all working miracles. We don't all speak in tongues. That's important to say because a, a lot of that movement today in tongue-speaking circles is you should all have it, and if you're not, what's wrong with you? And there's sort of a JV and varsity Christian here. There's those who speak in tongues who have this, this deep knowledge of God, and then there's those who are JV, those who have not yet spoken in tongues. God never intended, even when tongues was operative, he didn't intend for it to speak in it. All do not speak in tongues. So let's answer the question, D, should we pray in tongues? I say that because there's a lot of folks who, that's kind of the, the gateway into sort of 
uh, the charismatic circles is we pray in tongues. We go home, I practice my ba 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 da ba, and then I, I reach out to God with using that private prayer language to God. Are we commanded to do this? The Bible speaks to this. Chris Corinthians 14, 14. He says, for if I pray in a tongue, clearly that's something they were doing, my spirit prays, my inner man, my emotions and my will are reaching out to God. He says, but my mind is what? It's unfruitful. I don't understand what I'm praying. He says, what am I to do? In other words, he's saying that isn't right. You shouldn't be praying in a way where you're not sure what you're saying to God, where you're just reaching out to God in an emotional catharsis, but not with a real knowledge or an awareness of what you're saying. What am I to do? What should I do instead? He goes on, he says, I will pray with my spirit. I'm still gonna use my, my emotions and my will as I'm reaching out to God. I don't have to be a boring Christian, but he says, I will pray with my mind also. He'll go on to say the same thing about singing. I will sing in this, you know, with, with the spirit, but with my mind also. That worship isn't just an emotional experience. A lot of times we say that when we're worshiping on a Sunday morning. If it's an exciting worship time, we're all like, oh, God was in the house. How do you know? Well, everybody was excited. You got excited, you know, when Willie Nelson was here in town at the Paramount too. I don't think that was a worship experience. So sometimes emotions, we, we equate them with worship. And sometimes we feel like if I'm not bouncing off the walls excited or in tears, that somehow I'm distant from God and we start to look for something to spice up my Christian life. And then when we seek after emotional experiences over the truth of God and reaching out to him in worship and living in obedience to him, when we're just reaching out for an emotional experience, you need bigger and better because it's a drug that your body releases. And it's a law of diminishing returns, and pretty soon we're looking for our Christian life to be something bigger and better and more exciting, and that leads to all kinds of excesses where people are dropping gold dust from the ceiling, they're rolling on the floor, they're barking in the spirit, and they're doing any number of things attributed to the spirit of God because they need it to be bigger, better, faster, more powerful, more broad. We're not supposed to be reaching out for emotional experiences. He says, whatever we do, it begins in our mind with an awareness of who God is, his greatness and his glory and all that he has done. And that leads me to a place of worship. And the result can be emotions. It's the follow through. It's not what we pursue. I want you to see here the duration of tongues. How, you know, how long did tongues last or is it still going today? Go back a page to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We, based on, the per, on what tongues is, the nature of what tongues is, and its purpose as a sign gift to the Jews or unbelieving, I would argue that tongues is no longer an operative gift today. And I don't say that to be mean or disparaging to those of my friends who believe strongly in it, okay? If you still do, that's okay. We can still be friends. I hope we can still be friends, okay? What I'm saying here is that when we look at the purpose and everything about tongues, it has ceased. And you're asking, well, does the Bible ever say that tongues ceases? That's a valid question. First Corinthians chapter 13, verse eight, makes a pretty strong argument. I mean, it straight up says tongues will cease. He says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When he says the partial, he's talking about the two gifts he described that we know in part and we prophesy in part. What may be known of God, what may be proclaimed about God and taught about God, we only have a limited understanding. He says, that's gonna disappear someday. When? When the perfect comes. 
That's a whole other sermon. I believe that is referring to the eternal state because even in context, he's gonna talk about now and then. Now and then face to face. So the perfect is when we are face to face with Jesus. It's in eternity. Do you need a preacher in heaven? No, you don't. Because we will know him and be fully known, the Bible says. You don't need any preachers in heaven. Don't amen too hard or we will go into overtime. There's no preachers in heaven. You don't need them. So knowledge and prophecy, those are gonna be done away with when we're face to face with Jesus. But understand this, he uses a different Greek term to describe when tongues will cease, okay? The word that he uses to describe knowledge and prophecy when they disappear, they, they pass away, it's a passive voice verb, okay? It's passive. It means that something is going to cause it to stop. So like if somebody were to kick a soccer ball at me, please don't, but if somebody were to kick a soccer ball and I were to stop it with my foot, I caused the soccer ball to stop. An event caused that to stop. So there's going to be an event that causes knowledge and prophecy to stop. The proclamation, what may be known of God and taught of God, something will happen that stops it. It's the eternal state. But tongues is a different word. It's a middle voice. It means that tongues will cease in and of itself when it's good and well ready. That it's going to cease at a time prior to that because the end of all things is the end of all things. So it's going to cease when it runs out of energy. In other words, picture this. I don't have one before you today. I don't have kids in the home anymore, so I couldn't get one. Imagine I'm holding a wind-up toy, okay? You ever get one of those McDonald's toys or something? You, you know, and you wind it up and you set that little guy going. You got him for Easter in your Easter basket or something and, and it just kind of hobbles along the table. And then pretty soon it starts slowing down. And then it's done. You're like, I think it's done, you know? That is the picture of tongues will cease. God wound up tongues. He gave it a certain amount of energy for a certain time for a very specific purpose. And it kind of went tongues, 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 tongues. And then it just disappeared. That is the picture of what 1 Corinthians 13 is describing with tongues, that it will cease. I would argue that tongue ceased, A, because it was no longer needed. Remember, it was a sign to unbelieving Jews. And as the church grew into being a Gentile, not a Jewish church, you just didn't need the gift. In fact, let me show you a little timeline here. Up here, we've got, uh, there it is. You should have it on the back page of your uh, outline as well. Over here, I've got here, you have the Corinthians misuse of tongues and actual tongues here. In black, these are the gift of tongues as an actual language. And here's when they were used way back in like AD 50, 53, around that period of time, they were already duk, 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 slowing down in the New Testament. What you see here is a big empty void here, okay? Um, and by the way, not everything here is an example of tongues just these black things over here. Tongues is an actual language. I want you to see here also B, the early church fathers, which are these guys right here, okay? The early church fathers, Augustine, or Augustine, Augustine, how you wanna pronounce him, and Chrysostom. I want you to hear something about the early church fathers' testimony. Are they Bible? No, but they're strongly reliable historical accounts, much like you would read any other historical account. What's an early church father? Is it the dad who gets to church before everybody else? It's a bad joke, but it's okay, you can laugh. 
Early church fathers are those people to whom the apostles personally transferred the leadership and authority of the church to. In fact, uh, the earliest of the early church fathers were actually personally mentored by apostles. You ever heard of Polycarp? Polycarp was personally mentored by the apostle John, the last apostle surviving. And so they passed on the teaching and the doctrine in the Bible, a very, a very pure doctrine to the early church fathers, and the early church fathers would then write down non-canonical, they're not part of the Bible, but they're very reliable writings. I want you to hear what they said about sign gifts and tongues. So Chrysostom speaks about sign gifts in general, tongues being one of them. He says, this whole place is very obscure, but the obscurity is produced by our ignorance to the facts referred to and by their he uses the term cessation. Being such as then used to occur, but now no longer take place. So by the time Chrysostom was around, tongues had been long gone. And why do they not happen now? Why look now? Because the cause of such obscurity hath produced in us again another question, namely, why did they happen and now do so no more? Why don't we have any more gifts? He goes on to explain further. He says, even now there are some who seek them, the sign gifts, and they say, why do not miracles take place also at this present time? And then Chrysostom speaks to them personally. He says, if you are faithful as you ought to be, and if you lovest Christ as you ought to love him, you have no need of signs since they are given to unbelievers. This is our early church fathers here. Augustine said this, specifically of tongues. He said, in the earliest times, the Holy Ghost fell upon them that believed, and they spoke with tongues, which they had not learned as the Spirit gave them utterance. What event was that? That was Pentecost. That was Acts 2 that we just talked about. He says that did happen. He says, those were signs adapted to the time, for there behooved to be that betokening of the Holy Spirit in all tongues to show that the gospel of God was to run through all the tongues over the whole earth. That thing was done for a betokening, but then what'd it do? It passed away. This is the testimony of the early church fathers, like I said, who have received their teachings, many of the earliest ones from the apostles themselves. And later on, evangelical leaders will go on to confirm that tongues and sign gifts had ceased. Martin Luther, John Calvin, all of your Puritan preachers, guys who you know, came over and set up America, John Flavel, John Owen, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and others. I want you to see, see that there were no tongues for 1,500 years. Let's put that uh, chart back up here. Okay, so here it is. Here's tongues as an actual language. Okay, and then after that, you see these red guys, Montanus and Marcion. There were still people reporting that tongues were happening, but now the tongues of Marcion, Montanus and Marcion were not actual human languages. There were, uh, there were these other kinds of experiences. They would fall down the floor and they would convulse. They'd lose control. They would speak in an ecstatic speech, not a human language. And so these are reported as tongues, but we just call them glossa. They're not, they're not actual human earthly languages. And so even, even if we counted those as tongues in the most optimistic of, of timelines from here all the way to, you know, to the 1700s, you have these guys declaring that it ceased, these guys declaring tongues ceased, and then all the way to the 1700s when uh, you have these seven all prophets and the Jansenists, when it came back over here, it's the glossa, it's the red. It's the tongues of Montanists. By the way, Montanists started Montanism. It was an early church cult. Marcion, if you've ever done any church history study, what do we call Marcion? Marcion the, the heretic. 
which is not usually a good sign that you want to read his books. Marcion the heretic is also the guy who didn't believe in the deity of Christ. He did not believe that the God of the Old Testament was the same as the new. They had all kinds of bizarre experiences that they would do, and the tongues that they spoke were not actual languages like we saw here. And then later on, we see nothing. 1,500 years at the most optimistic of timelines, zero tongues. Just objectively speaking, friends, we have to look and say, I don't know, 1,500 years, tongues ceased. We don't have any record of non-human language or human language or anything being shared from, from here to here. And when they did pop up again, what kind was it? It was the non-human speech. It was the ecstatic speech. And we saw it in groups like the Methodist Holiness. We saw it at the Zeusa Street Revival, Mormons, Shakers. By the way, they were called Shakers. You love their furniture. Don't read their doctrine books, though. They were called Shakers because they'd go on the floor and they'd convulse and they'd, they would shake. And, and so that is what we have representing tongues today, is this ecstatic speech as opposed to being an actual earthly language. But even in the most optimistic of timelines, tongues just literally stopped. They just petered off and stopped. And when they came back, they came back as a, as a tongues that did not represent Pentecost, did not represent Acts chapter two. Don't worry, we're basically done. I want you to hear this. You might be asking yourself, why are you even talking about tongues? Why don't you just let people have their fun? If that's the way they want to express themselves to God, let them do that. Can I tell you, friends, when we approach God, we don't approach God how we want to approach God, do we? God gives us very prescribed terms. You come to me through Christ. You serve me in this way. In the church, you do it this way. Jesus said to the woman at the well, John 4, I think it's 24, where he says, those who worship him must worship him in spirit and according to what? Spirit and truth. We don't worship God. We don't bring things into the church that we just feel like doing. It's why we don't have Cirque du Soleil happening on Sunday mornings with trapeze artists swinging in and crazy stuff because that's not a part of Christian worship in the Bible. So we don't just bring into the church something that feels good and because I like it, I should be a part of it. We've gotta make sure that when we worship God, we worship him according to his word as God asked to be worshiped. Otherwise, we're giving him the offering of Cain. What did Cain give God? God asked for a, a, a blood sacrifice, a meat sacrifice. What did Cain give him? Vegetables. I'm gonna worship God, but I'm gonna worship him according to how I wanna worship him. I'm gonna worship him according to what feels good to me, what's convenient for me, what's familiar to me. Others still will say, I know what you're saying from scripture and I see what you're saying, but, and there's an asterisk next to the Bible, but how do you explain the experiences that I've personally had? How do you explain the experiences that my best friend, who I really trust and really walks with God and is a really godly Christian, how do you explain their experiences? Can I tell you with all the love in my heart, I don't have to. I don't have to explain your experiences. Your experiences have to explain themselves in light of the word of God. If it doesn't match with scripture, friends, it's not of God. Remember the, prop, the Pharaoh, uh, his magicians. You can mimic the gift of God. You can mimic the activity and the work of God, but if it doesn't line up with scripture, it's not of God. It may be of man, or worse yet, it could be motivated by an even darker source. I think the vast majority of tongues is simply motivated by man, and I don't even think they have bad motives. The majority of my friends who speak tongues, yeah, I, I believe they're genuine believers, and they are seeking out for God, they're reaching out for God. Maybe they grew up in one of these dead, dry, crusty churches, it's boring, and we just, they don't even try to show life, and they're just reaching out for God any way that they know how, and somebody said, hey, I've got an exciting church, we got exciting music, we speak in tongues, you should speak in tongues, it's really gonna dress up your devotional life with God, and it feels exciting for the first time, Christian worship was exciting again. 
So I'm not blasting my tongue speaking, friends. I got a lot of them. But I want to make sure that the worship that we give God is according to his scripture and not to my preferences. According to scripture, not my personal experiences. I want to give you one more personal experience or one more demonstration of why experience is dangerous. In the end days, in the tribulation, there will be signs and wonders again. Real signs and wonders. But did you know there's also going to be fake signs and wonders in the tribulation? Jesus prophesied this in Matthew 24. He says, for false Christs and false prophets will arise in that day and they will perform signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. And in Revelation 19, 20, we see it says the beast was captured. He's talking about Satan's, Satan's representatives here on earth during the tribulation. He says, the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast. In those end days, friends, you're gonna see people, you know, these, these two witnesses are gonna do miraculous things from God, but what is a false prophet gonna do? He's also gonna do miraculous things, and he's going to deceive people into thinking because you have witnessed something, because you've experienced something, because you felt something, it must be of God, is it? How do you know when you experience something, whether if it's of God or not? It's right here. You have to compare every experience you have with scripture. The problem is the people who follow the false prophet don't, don't know this book. The people who do know this book are gonna see the, you know, and have this book are gonna see the witnesses and they're gonna know those men's gifts are from God. This guy over here, it may look amazing. It may be miraculous appearing, the power of demons at work, and it's gonna be stunning, and it says it's going to lead astray a great many people. So no, we can't just trust what we see. We're not called to live by sight, are we? We're called to live by faith, faith by what God said truth is, and not faith in what I can see, what I can feel, what I can touch, smell, taste, experience, because there's a lot of things out there that feel spiritual today that are not spiritual according to God. That's why he says again in 1 John 4, 1, he said, beloved. He's saying, I love you guys. The reason I'm sharing this stuff is because I care about you. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Don't just believe everything because somebody experienced it or they told you some grand story about something that happened on the mission field. Don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits. How do we do that? We line it up to scripture. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Let's be a discerning people as we worship God according to spirit and truth. Let's close. Father, we thank you this morning as we've studied an extremely difficult subject, a subject that can be very deeply personal to a lot of people. God, my prayer this morning is that we have scripture to identify what that gift was so that we're not deceived into trying to buy into every, everything that claims to be spiritual that we're not falling prey to error and false teaching. God, and even for my friends out there who maybe are more charismatic, leaning, or Pentecostal, they would understand that this, this message, it's preached from a heart of love. It's preached from a heart of desiring people to line up their spiritual experiences with the word of God so that when we worship you, it's according to spirit and truth. God, I pray that the truth would unify us as a church, unify us as believers. Help us to understand you, God. Help us understand who you are. Help us understand what you have done and that that alone might be the basis of our worship. Not just what we feel through the music, not just what we feel through experience, but that our faith would be in you through the word of God, which confirms all of this to be true. 
We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, click on the link in the show notes, and we would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. If you've enjoyed today's talk, remember to like, subscribe, and share our podcast. And as promised, if you would like more information about Unity, you can connect with us at unitybaptistashland.com or on Facebook at UBC Ashland.